Hello, everybody, and welcome to Faster Masters Rowing Radio, where having a rowing coach only makes you better. Following a program gives you a true pathway to becoming a confident rower who's respected by your peers. You can become the athlete you want to row with. I'm Rebecca Caro, and I'm joined by Marlene Royal. Hello, Rebecca, and hello to our Faster Masters audience. Yeah, it kind of feels like we were only together yesterday, really. <laughs> I know, I know. We we've had quite a quite an intensive and really interesting week with the Racing Starts Challenge. I mean, our guests were out of this world. They were. We had Mary Whipple, Adam Creek, and Cam Kasoglus, and very different people. And each of them brought just a unique look into their view of their part of doing a racing start. And what, what blew me away is two of them have been guests with us before on the exact same webinar, and it was completely different. Mm-hmm. There were new points, new things that I learned that, you know, I was taking notes. I was too. I mean, I'm, I'm so glad that we have the recordings and people can get the recordings. Um, but I mean, I, I honestly want to go back and re-listen to all three of them. There was, it's so interesting when, when um, you think about what can you learn from elite athletes, you know, no matter what your level of rowing is, there's always principles that you can take and apply to your own training based on your own goals. And what, what really struck me um especially with Adam and Mary, uh, was the, the, the level of intention and the level of attention to how long does something take and why are we doing this and what's the purpose of doing the stroke this way and what do we need to check and what do we use as a reference point? And there, there was so much detail and Adam, Adam, I won't give away the information, but Adam had a really interesting presentation about how much it really takes to win the gold medal. And he had a lot of numbers to throw around in terms of meters and practices and all kinds of statistics that was incredibly interesting. How many times they practiced this, how many times they practiced that. But, you know, just the, the level of paying attention to detail. And I think this is something that masters can really benefit from it. It's about paying attention and using the Spracklin inch by inch methodology. You know, how can you get a little bit better with your diet? How can you get a little bit better with your recovery? How can you get a little bit better with your blade work? How can you get a little bit, you know, it's not about taking big chunks and giant meals. It's about snacks and little nibbles and, you know, chipping, chipping away at it. But, you know, this, these were messages that came across over and over. And I think if, if people listen to those recordings, they're going to be completely blown away. It reinforces to me that there is a, a widely held attitude that masters aren't serious about rowing, that, you know, they're, they're not, um, because they're not elites, they're not, you know, in the game. And what this reinforced to me is the exact opposite, that masters can be just as serious and intentional and use the exact same techniques and methods as young athletes. And in fact, being a little older and having a bit more life experience, 
probably means we execute some of the strategies rather better because we understand the context. Yes, absolutely. But um, I, I, I have a lot of notes just, just like you. I mean, just the take, the takeaways were unbelievable. And, you know, I think our wheels were just turning like, wow, you know, that, that's, that's a great way to look at something and a great way to appreciate. And, and we talked about only the start. You know, I mean, just cracks me up. It's like I know six hours, and all we got to was kind of transitioning onto race. <laughs> I know, I know, but it shows you what the what the possibilities are, and you know, to educate people, to give them ideas of this is how you can work out what's good for you. These are some of the things to consider, and um, yeah, very. I mean, very, very interesting to hear the difference from Mary in the coxswain seat. Adam in the seven seat of a gold medal eight, Mary in the coxswain seat of a gold medal eight, Cam at, from the coach from the coach boat. Very very interesting. Very different perspectives, and they they all you know they all worked really well together. So today I want to show you my photo of the week. So this is a photograph of the West End Rowing Club Open Women's Eight. Uh, just getting boated at Karapiro, New Zealand. There's Robbie Manson standing up on the dock, giving them some last bit of advice. And Juliet Haig, Mahe's wife, is in the seventh seat. And obviously they're all looking very happy and ready to race. That was the last race of the day at our regatta last weekend. Cool. Now, today's show is brought to you by King Kong Bags. Fitness is a journey and we found the perfect companion for every step of the way. Imagine a seriously tough training partner that's guaranteed to keep you on your game, will never skip a session, is always there to level up your motivation and will even organize your life and hold all your workout gear for you. Meet King Kong Bags, the toughest gym bags in the game. You can drag them around, pack them to the max and take them on the toughest of adventures with confidence they aren't going to rip or stretch. All King Kong bags are decked out with all the pockets and compartments you'll ever need. We're talking shoe compartments, laptop sleeves, multiple bottle pockets, wet zones for your towel, pockets for your gym accessories, meal prep storage, and even a unique weightlifting belt attachment. So if you take your training seriously, you need a serious gym bag too. Pack, ready to pack for greatness. Take the quiz and let the pros match you to the perfect gym bag, and you'll also score a $10 discount. Just head to knkg.com forward slash rowing chat. If you're not convinced, buy it, pack it, take it to the gym, get chalk all over it, and if it doesn't live up to the hype of being the number one gym bag of 80,000 plus fitness freaks worldwide, return it for a full refund with no questions asked. Make sure you use knkg.com forward slash rowing chat for our exclusive $10 off discount. Now, our topic for the week is crew combinations. Having come off all of that racing start discussion, <laughs> right, exactly. people probably realize I've done the first big regatta of the season for myself. How do we build a lineup that is well prepared for racing, particularly on the one subject of rowing together in sync. So Marlene, what are the key essences 
that you think for crew combinations? And I don't want to talk lineups today. I don't want to talk about where you put the strongest person or who does the calls. I think you want to look for a combination that has has the ability, first of all, to cooperate with each other. You know, this kind of basic in the boat, but um, a combination that that has good rhythm, has good flow. Um, you know, when when you get into new combinations right away, you you can usually feel that like, does this combination click? or it doesn't click, right? That, you know, do you feel that it's difficult for the recovery speed to match up or the drive the drive length might be all really different. But then there's sometimes that you get into a, a, a boat, a double with another person, or you get into a four and you just feel like there is some flow, there's an energy that the crew works really well together. And now, you know, at this, at this stage, this is like say an initial row, you don't have to be absolutely perfect, but you can feel how there's a cooperation between all of the people in the different seats. And when you find a combination like that, I think it's, I think it's really valuable. And if you have the opportunity to row together on a regular basis, you have a real advantage, um, you have a real advantage over other boats from other clubs who might just put together, throw together crews for certain events. So I think when you first find a, a boat that has a good energy and a good dynamic, it's worth starting to practice more together so that you, you can develop that, you know, from season to season. There's definitely advantages in sticking together. No question. You get better use to each other. I would focus particularly on whether or not the crew feels like they've got a strong rhythm. Is there someone who can set that strong rhythm and can you adjust your stroke to blend into it? Because it's very unusual that you get in a boat with someone else and they row the exact same way that you do, unless you've come out of the same training squad where you've all been coached and drilled a lot and you really are able just to jump in any crew and go. And I did have that experience once when I was um, a younger rower. My club, Marlow Rowing Club, had used to go to Maidenhead, which was the next town up the river for their summer regatta. And, of course, we always had the, uh, we have to beat them. These are the local rivals. And so my club would always try and enter every single event. And I remember the coach or the captain coming to us and going, right, Rebecca and Joe, you're in a pair. And we looked at each other and went, we've never been in a pair together. Okay. And I'm a reasonably tall <laughs> heavyweight and she's a, um, yeah, not particularly tall, lightweight. It's like, okay, we better, you know, sharpen <laughs> up and go, go do some practice. And we had a fabulous race. We didn't have any problems rowing together. A year later, that coach had left. We had a different coach coaching us. And just as luck would have it, one of the weekend combinations, Phil put us out in a pair and we could not get it together. And oh, I vividly wow. remember pulling up behind his coach boat, like waving him down and going, Phil, Phil, can you give us some pointers? This really isn't going well. Because if I remember rightly, we were supposed to be doing like reasonably high rate short pieces and we couldn't even paddle together. 
and he just told us to put ourselves together and get on with it. Oh dear, so, I know. Well, th those practices are those practices are really rough. In in a pair, actually, I had a very similar experience in a pair many many years ago when I was rowing lightweight and we were getting ready for to go to a camp for some trials and selections, and the coach was mixing and matching, trying to find yeah. partners, and he put this this woman with me who quite honestly, it was like rowing with a bucking Bronco in the back. And, and in a, I mean, in a double, it would be bad enough because at least we each have two oars, but in a pair, I mean, I was, I thought I was going to go into the Charles river every single stroke. And it was just abs. I mean, there was just no synchronicity at all. And I, I went to the coach and I said, honestly, like, this really isn't going to work. You know, can you please, can you put me with someone else, please? And it was a little bit of backstage pleading, but but I did I did finally end up with a different partner for for mm. the national championships because we had to race we had to race pairs and we had to race small boats in mm. order to be considered for for certain selections. And you know, I didn't want to go down the course with the bucking bronco in the bow seat, so it was. You know, it was quite a quite a rough experience. So I think the search for a crew that clicks is a false move. I know that people talk about it. You've just talked about it. And it generally, the more experienced you are, the more likely you are to be able to row together easily. But I think that it's it, it's a dream and not the reality and that you shouldn't focus on that. What I do think is that you need to have some basic rules and one of them is follow stroke. So if you have the option, put your best technician in the stroke seat and get everyone else to make the small adjustments to follow them rather than trying to stroke it from the seven seat or the three seat or, you know, whatever, about seat, which is even worse. Um, and accept that one of the kind of ground rules of your crew is that we are all going to make some small changes to blend together. And that is, a for me, a, a good thing to agree on the land before you go out for that first outing. Because, for example, you may put someone in the stroke seat who doesn't end up as the end stroke. Mm -hmm. You may find that you want to try different strokes. So you need to have that open-mindedness to say, today in this lineup, I am going to do my best to match what's in front of me as far as I can. And that open mindset will help in terms of getting a lineup to begin to blend. And when you get on that water for the first time, Marlene, what are the key things you should be doing and looking for in that very first outing to see what might I personally need to adjust? Well, I, I like your advice about, first of all, follow the stroke. And that's very critical. And the seat behind the stroke is there to support the stroke and help transmit that rhythm to, to the rest of the crew. Now, you have to start somewhere to train the crew to, to work together. And um, I like to start with getting everyone at the release point at the same time or setting, making sure that you, you set their stretchers so that they're finished position. So we're defining 
the release is a is a skill is a part of blade work finish is a position which is the legs are down you have a little bit of layback the hands are at the at the body you want to aim for everyone coming to the finished position together at the same time and ideally as close as you can get the angle set and you can do that by adjusting your foot stretcher so that everybody's um, about the same and focus first on on the crew getting out of the water together and that's going to set them up for the recovery so that they can then once they have the release together they can they can focus on on the arms away arms and body away and getting out to the crossover if they're in a, a double or a quad or getting out to the perpendicular a little bit past perpendicular if you're in a sweep boat because it's important to make that release and have the follow through happen together before you start to focus on what's going to happen next to come up to to take the next stroke and put the blade in the water so i like to to first get people together to that point and then go from there. A good way to start with that is to start with a static check. Push off the dock, fix up, everyone sit with the, at the finish with your blade squared and buried. Bow is probably best placed if you don't have someone on the bank or a coach boat to say if your blades are parallel. And more importantly, if you're in a club boat that is shared with other crews, make sure that your handle heights when your oars are buried under the water at the finish, make sure you note exactly where your handle draws to, whether it's your outside hand in the sweep or your the root of your thumb in the sculling. Some clubs have adjustable snap locker washers on the oar locks, or sorry, on the pins, so you can raise and lower the oar locks. Um, these ping fuck washers, as Paul from Cambridge named them because when you try and take them off, they ping off and you say, anyway, <laughs> these washers are very, they're cheap and they're a really good investment for clubs. And a couple of years ago, my club spent a not particularly large amount of money getting a set so that we had every club boat had a fat one above and below the gate in like particularly the quads, but also in some of the doubles, because we often row mixed but mixed crews. So you'll have a lighter or a heavier crew. And it's then very easy visually to know what to adjust. Have I got two above or have I got one above and one below or both below? And then you can just see quite easily what mm -hmm. change you might need to make for yourself. So I think getting that static position before the boat's even moving is a good start point before you move into Marlene's advice on starting with the finish and your alignment there. Now you can also use your peripheral vision. Uh, there's a little trick which I teach to beginners but I, I, I'm going to teach you here. So you take your fingers and hold your hands right out wide to the side and try and keep your 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 erect fingers in your line of sight and work out how far to the side of your body you can move the fingers before you lose sight of them. Particularly if you move them just a little bit back and forth, you can, you can see the movement without turning your head. And in a rowing boat, in most rowing boats, you can see the finish of the person in front using this technique. And you can also sometimes see your own finish. And so that gives you a visual check for your own timing 
of the finish against the other members in the crew. And I think that can be, again, a useful thing just through that warm-up, that mm -hmm. very, very first session. Let's talk about some drills. That people yeah, dr can... drills are really important. And practicing drills is going to help make these transitions from, from your finished position to the arms and body away and, you know, getting one, once you're out of the water and you follow through, it's important that your knees start to rise at the same time or that people are getting their body, their arms away and their body angles to, together. Um, one favorite drill I like to use are pause drills and there's a variety of, of pause drills. And sometimes coaches say, well, you know, the stroke is continuous and we always talk about the stroke being continuous, but why are we pausing in the middle of the stroke cycle? But use the pause at various stations. Right now, I would say um, arms and body away. I think you can use that drill for about 70 different things. You can focus on many, many things from that point in the stroke. But here, when you're working on blending, blending your crew, you can use the pause at arms and body away exactly to work on the release timing and everyone getting to the same position before their knees start to rise. So that's one use of the pause drill. There are many, many uses of the pause drill because you can then work at part slide. You can have a quarter slide pause or a half slide pause. You can do a double pause. But all of these small pauses, which is, I like to use a count of one, 1,000, two, 1,000 row, that type of a rhythm, gives the crew an opportunity to check their position relative to everyone else and then to move together out of the pause to the next station. If you have a crew where it's particularly wobbly, the first pause that I like to use is actually at the finish with the blades feathered and resting on the surface of the water. So when you're in your position and you feather the blades and you sit in that finish, that is where you should be drawing to before you extract. And it serves as a very good reminder to check whether your handles are exactly in the right place. Because if you're in that position, and obviously if the boat weren't moving and you squared your blade, that would be the correct finish position. Because quite often you find people come into the finish and they draw their arms down into their lap to make the extraction rather than holding the handle high to the full finish position and then pushing down with weight here in the palm of your hand. So that weight in the handle is really important. So if it's wobbly, you can use that drill to make sure that the boat comes to completely level at that one moment. And that gives people a lot of confidence. So I like to, to add that as if you need it. It, it is um, a little bit of a beginnery drill, but it's useful. And, you know, there's doing drills and skills. It's like a ladder. Be Don't be afraid of going down to a simpler position before you step up to something that's a little bit more, a little more skill, a little bit more combination. Um, in right. The crew that's needed. Well, it creates awareness, which is really important. It gives the crew a gathering point that, yes, we all have to get here. We have that micro pause, and now we're all going to move out of that, learning to move out of that position together as well. So when you're blending a crew, 
there's no need to rush at the process. I, I think Rebecca's absolutely right. You know, sim very simple drills can be very enlightening and show people, you know, this is how where we're sitting in the boat is set. This is how we've all arrived at the same point together. This is how we move to the next point together because yeah. it's about doing things together and everybody, you know, everybody has to compromise a little bit to blend. So you have we have different body sized people. Body size is that a word? I don't long know. Legs. <laughs> long, but we, we might have people with very different shapes, but they can still, if they work together and they have the right mindset to work together, you can always blend as a crew. And you need to practice the, the skills and drills that allow you to figure out how you have to slightly adjust your timing to work with the stroke and so that everybody is the same through the water and on the recovery. So if you're a crew that has someone who is particularly short compared with the others, get in touch with us, fastermastersrowing.com forward slash concierge. You can book a time and I will come and tell you a little bit about some things that you can try if that is a particular challenge you're facing. Now, the next drill that I really like is, uh, is about aligning the power phase. And for this, I like to do the legs only rowing drill. So you're sat forward, leaning forward in your catch position. You put the blades in the water and you just drive the legs straight. And then you take the oars out of the water. You can do this square blades or feathered. And you begin to get the legs going down together. And I like to alternate this with 10 strokes of the drill, 10 strokes normal rowing, just to see if you're capable of making the leg drive the same in the normal rowing as you did in the drill. That's a difficult drill for a lot of people. It's a, it's a very useful drill. But some of the things we see is they start to press the legs and they bend the arms right away. We want to keep long arms. Mary Whipple said arms mess up the stroke. <laughs> so, so when you're doing legs only, it's important to realize that you're keeping, there's no body angle and no bend in the arms for this. So you're really, you're really isolating the legs. You're focusing on what it feels like to press off the foot stretcher, have that connection between your feet and your fingers. You want to feel pressure against the oar handle as well as pressure against your feet and keeping your hips behind your shoulders. And this is something that um, oftentimes can get lost in the stroke. If one opens the body early, the hips are no longer moving to the bow. So yes. you want to make sure when you do legs only, it's really important to focus on where are my hips relative to my shoulders and my hips are going to the bow and I'm keeping my shoulders forward. And um, I like to think about it as, you know, your upper body is being this rock face, right? That's the platform, this angle. And you're just push your knees push your knees away from the body, which is different from lifting your body away from your knees. So the legs only drill is very, very good at isolating that and helping you stay horizontal. Yeah. And that, if you, if you're a person who likes to have something to feel, um, feeling your knees coming up and working out, you know, whether they might hit your lower ribs or your belly or your chest, where, where do they touch when you're at full compression? And then do what Marlene just described to move away from it. But first identify, can I feel that? Yeah. I have a really, a really funny saying. Um, 
Norm, Norm Graff was a, a very well-known coach in New England for many years. And um, he used to say, squeeze the grapefruit. So like he used to say, hold a grapefruit. Um, with my scholars, I changed that to like a, a sponge Nerf ball. But he would say, at, in compression, hold a grapefruit between your thighs and your belly and hold that grapefruit as long as you can on the drive. And I always thought that was a, that was a really good image. But, you know, imagine you've got one of those sponge Nerf balls and you want to hold that you want to hold that Nerf ball, even go to the dollar store and buy one. Right. Go get a Nerf ball or a balloon. Right. Or something. But it's a really good um, physical reference of, you know, how you and if you if you lose that body angle, you're going to lose your grapefruit. Right. So right. don't lose the grapefruit. Don't lose the grapefruit. <laughs> Now, the next drill that I think you should do is a set of ladders. Now, ladders are a workout when you do firm, alternating with light, and you step up the rating each time, which is why they're called a ladder. And the version, which are really good for getting a crew together, is 20 firm, 10 light. 20 firm, 10 light. And you do it six times, and each time you do it, you step up two points in rate. So I usually recommend starting at 20. 18s often feels a little low. So you do 20 firm at rate 20. Then go to 10 light. And it doesn't matter what the rate is in the light. So just, just take it right down. Just paddle really light. And then move up. The next 20 firm will be at rate 22. The key thing here is to ensure that the person who's doing the calls is really clear. Because if you're going from the 10th stroke light to the first stroke firm, you can do that in one stroke, probably up to about rate 24. But above that, you can't. You can't jump that number of points in rate and power. So my preference is to have people call strokes 8, 9, 10, and you gradually increase the rate and the power through those last three. So we just go light and then literally they just go eight and then, you know, that's the eighth stroke. The next one you take will be the eighth. Just that's a signal that you need to be starting to load yourself up again. Nine, move a little faster up the slide. Keep your handle moving around the finish. So the rate starts to come up. Ten. And then you can jump probably three, four points in rate quite easily because you've already got the power up. And you've already started to build the rating momentum. So taking another step actually isn't that difficult. And you do these ladders so that you'll go from rate 20 through to rate 30. That's six steps. And it takes about 2K to do. So think about your river, your lake. If you have a Boyd course, that's marvelous. Then give yourself five minutes rest. And then you can do it again. And you can choose if you want to do it again at the same rates or if you want to start two points higher. And a full workout, if you're a, a younger master's crew, is to do this three times. So we used to do it, particularly when we were on camp, we'd do it around the 2K course. You paddle all the way back to the 2K start, so that's a bit more than five minutes rest, and do it again, and then paddle all the way around and do it a third time. And what you're looking for is where do the speed wobbles come in? Which ratings feel good? Which ratings feel a bit rushed or a little uncertain or the boat's not balanced or, or whatever? And as I've said in the past, you also, it helps if you have a speed meter and you can see if you're making the boat go faster every time you take the rate up because the boat moves 
one boat length per stroke, roughly. If you are doing two extra strokes per minute, you should be going faster. Hopefully, that's the idea, right? If you're not, reassess, <laughs> back up. But that, that's a that's a fantastic workout. And I love workouts like that where you have a power focus and then you have these 10 strokes light. The 10 strokes light is not really a physiological rest because it's very short, but it is a mental rest and allows you to kind of reset, refocus, and then get ready for the next one. Because already on eight, you're going to be starting to, to bring it up for the, for the next 20 strokes. So having that brief mental reset really helps you then focus on what what's the task for the next for the next 20 strokes and it's a it's an excellent workout it gives the crew a little bit of time to regroup and then yeah. you bring it up again and then you regroup and you bring it up again and again that that 10 strokes it's not much of a rest from a physiological point of view but it does give the crew say say that wasn't a good 20 strokes it gives you a chance to reset get ready for the next one and and the, these types of sessions that alternate brief rests inside the session are very good for for mental focus i find um because usually the rest isn't long enough to be really a physiological rest like your five minute rest is where you're going to get your rest from the full set but mm -hmm. um but it but it is enough say just to, re to relax your hands maybe to have a couple extra deep breaths reset and then go yeah, I, I really like that. And does it count as, as high intensity interval training? Because each ten, each 20 is firm pressure. Well, I, I in the overall effect, I would say yes. And th this is where if you look at it, this is a classic session, that's a mix. So if you look at the the overall training effect of a, of a session like this, I would say that this is a category four session, which is an anaerobic threshold type session, even though you're starting out at a lower stroke rate, you're still at high pressure. And these 10 and these 10 strokes off are, as I said, they're not enough to, to really give you rest. And then you're going to go up again. So you, if you, if you kind of average your intensity at 30 or 28 with your intensity at 20 or 22, you're going to come out in a 24, 26 range. And so if you look at the overall training effect, you know, you're working, we call this redlining. When you work above and below your anaerobic threshold, the net effect is improving your anaerobic threshold. And sometimes it's a lot easier to do that type of a session than to say row a, a steady 20 minutes at 24, which is, which is kind of, you know, or two times 20 minutes at 24, which is a pretty hard piece. So this, this allows quality work with, um, you know, through the entire workout, just because of those brief rests. So I, I would say overall, this would be an anaerobic threshold type focus. If you're curious about the categories that we use to determine training, uh, buy yourself a copy of the Faster Five, which is our core principles of Faster Masters rowing. All the things that you need to know around all the different elements of training, racing, blade work, and this is part of the uh, preparation and testing five. It's the fifth one. Um, and it, it explains exactly what, in more detail, what Marlene's just alluded to. Yes. And if you join a membership program, the Faster Five comes with your membership program. 
that's right it's a joining bonus so yeah that's a that's a great way to get it <laughs> easy peasy so we hope you all have fun uh, blending yourself into new crew combinations um do let us know whether any of these are useful for you um it's it's always nice to get some feedback but uh you know we don't necessarily need it all the time so this has been Faster Masters Rowing Radio, the show dedicated to Masters athletes who want fun, fitness and confidence in their rowing. You can become a student of the sport by buying a Faster Masters Rowing program subscription today. Go to fastermastersrowing.com forward slash join. Please leave us a review if you listen in a podcast app and tell your friends. We welcome all our new listeners. Till next time. Bye-bye. Goodbye, everyone.